So we need to be in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are prepared for the study of the Word, and then we open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful we had this time to come together to study your word, to reflect upon your grace, to reflect upon your righteousness, to reflect upon your plan for our lives and your plan for uh, the future in terms of the human race, to reflect upon the priorities that Scripture says should characterize our lives and that we need to learn to conform to your word and not let the world system uh, force us into the mold, transform, and seeking to to uh, conform us to the standards that characterize the sin nature and Satan's kingdom. Now, Father, we pray for this nation that we live in. We pray that you would guide and direct the leaders, provide leaders who understand biblical truth, leaders who understand eternal absolutes, and leaders who understand that which is necessary to provide security and safety and prosperity for a nation. Father, we pray for us that no matter what the external circumstances might be, that we might keep our focus and attention upon you and your word, for it is your word that stabilizes us and gives us a helps us to understand the meaning and purpose of our life, that we might glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in this lesson we're going back to First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we've taken a hiatus for about 10 lessons to focus on what it means to trust the Lord, to have faith, and we sort of segued out of uh, our study uh, in, in First Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul reminded the Thessalonian believers that their faith toward God had gone out. They had developed in just a very short time a reputation for trusting God. And so we asked the question, how do we trust God in terms of what I've called the faith rest drill, and how do we utilize that in terms of claiming promises and focusing on his word? So having done that for nine or ten lessons, I want to bring us back to the text and continue our study in First Thessalonians. Now, this last section really drives us forward to the last verse, which talks about the fact that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And so this is, becomes a major theme. Verses 2 through 10 introduce the major themes that we find in in First Thessalonians. Now, just as a reminder and a little review, because it's been a while since we've been here, Thessalonica was a major port city located in Macedonia, or as we anglicize it, Macedonia, in uh, ancient Greece. There are two basic regions to ancient Greece, Achaia, which was in the south. This is where uh, Athens was located, Corinth was located, Sparta down on the Peloponnesian Peninsula were all located in in, uh, Achaia. This is the green section on the slide. And Macedonia is up to the north. It's the uh, yellowish-orange section up there. And we see uh, Thessalonica is located uh, right here as a major harbor. So the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, uh, left, went to retrace his steps in Lystra, Iconium, and Derby over here in the just to the right of center area, the green shaded area in Galatia, 
These were the uh, towns and cities that he visited on his first missionary journey. And then God the Holy Spirit prevented him, and we don't know how, but probably through some special revelation because that was operative at the time, and he is, after all, an apostle. So he was not allowed to go to Asia or to go to Bithynia. And God the Holy Spirit was directing him to the port city of Troas, There he had a vision of a man calling him over to Macedonia. And so they took a ship. uh, They crossed over uh, to Neapolis, which is the port city, and then they went to Philippi, established a church in Philippi. Then they walked uh, from there to Thessalonica, established a church there. They were only there for two or three months. And so there was a lot that was communicated during that time. It's amazing when people aren't distracted with television, when they're not distracted with Facebook and Twitter and always checking their uh, electronic devices for their latest emails and everything else, they can really focus on that which is important. And so they would come together. And if we can judge today, today by standards in many areas, where the gospel first goes, the people would come and they would want to be taught for hours. We find this to be true in places in Africa, in South America, in India. But you come to the United States where we have so much Bible teaching, people don't want to give more than an hour to Bible teaching, but they would come, they come in these areas. You talk to missionaries, talk to many of the people like Jim Myers who come here, others who go to India and to, um, go to India and to Africa and other places, they will have all-day conferences. People will travel by foot and other more primitive means to get a bus, uh, whatever, to get to these locations, and they want Bible teaching that goes on for hours. They'll have session after session after after session. It, it shames us because we often think, oh, I can't last more than a couple of hours, and we think that's doing really well. So... Uh, this would have been the case with Paul and Thessalonica. They came for hours and hours and hours to be taught the word, but there was increasing opposition from the Jewish leadership in the synagogues, and eventually uh, Paul had to leave. He left Timothy behind uh, for a while in order to help establish the people. But what happens is they had questions, especially about those who died and where they went, and so uh, they send a letter uh, by way of Timothy to Paul, and he answers. That's First, first Thessalonians. Here's a topographical map that shows uh, the area a little bit, uh, a little better. You can see there's a ridge line of mountains here. So coming across from uh, Philippi, you would take this this route and then cross over a little pass here on the Via Ignatia, and then end up in Thessalonica. So what does Paul say about them? Let's just pick up our context again. We'll go back to verse 6. Paul says to them, and this is high praise, he says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, so that, as a result, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now, I want you to notice that there's a, a connection between the first part of verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. You became followers. In other words, that's, that's, they followed the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
so that as a result they in turn became examples to those to whom they were ministering. Now the word that is translated became is the Greek verb ginomai. Now there's three what we call existential verbs in, in Greek. An existential verb is a verb that states something exists, something is. Uh, you say, uh, there is a, uh, there, there is a, a, a door in the wall. Uh, you're talking about something that actually exists. And, and if you, um, use a different word, uh, for example, in, in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. That's the word, uh, ami, which indicates something exists. And in present tense, it would indicate something, uh, is existing in the present. If it's in a, an imperfect tense, it continuously existed in past time. That's the emphasis in John one one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so then John shifts when we get down to John one four, and he says, there was a man. And this is the verb genomai. So there's a contrast between the logos of God who is eternally existing and this man that comes on the scene in verse 4 who is John the Baptist who comes into existence. And that's the verb that we have here. Genomai has the idea of coming into existence, something that becomes something that it wasn't before. So uh, Paul says, you became followers of us. They were unbelievers. They were pagans. Uh, then as they became believers, then the next step is to become followers uh, of us and of the Lord. Now, this word is translated followers is the Greek word from which we get our English word mimic. It's the noun mimetes, and it means someone who imitates someone else, who mimics their life, who is their follower. And in the sense of someone being a follower, that ought to uh, click something in our minds Take us back to what Jesus said to the, to the disciples when he said, follow me. That was the key to discipleship. So the idea that is represented here shows the, the impact of, of discipleship, even though that word is not talked about here. They were following the instructions of their teachers, following the instructions of the apostles, and implementing that, uh, in their lives. Now, when we read this, and, and uh, in some of the translations uh, translate this with a little different word, they say you became imitators of us. Paul isn't focusing on so much on them imitating him as Saul of Tarsus, but imitating him only insofar as he is imitating Christ. So I want to stop just a minute and talk about this particular this particular word and how it's used in the New Testament. In the uh, New Testament, the verb form of the noun mimetes is mimeomai, mimeomai. That's spelled M-I-M-E-O-M-A-I, mimeomai. It has the, the, it's the verb form of this particular noun and has that same idea of being a follower, being an example, or mimicking someone. The verb's only used four times in the, in the uh, New Testament. And the noun is used six times, but the noun is often used in constructions like this where it says you are something or, or you should be a imitator of us. So there's a verbal idea even in this sentence, you became followers of us, 
And uh, by by using it with an existential verb, it's emphasizing basically the same idea that you get in sentences where the verb is used. So what we see, first of all, when we look at the use of these words, four, four uses of the verb, six uses of the of the noun, is that as a spiritually mature apostle, the Apostle Paul is conforming to the image of Christ, and therefore, as he is walking by the Spirit, he, he, his life is an example to others, so that by, by looking at him, these uh, new believers can get an idea of how they should live as, as believers. That doesn't mean that Paul was perfect. No apostle was perfect. They all had sin natures. But he's focusing on himself as a model of Christianity as far as he can possibly apply that. And he makes this very clear in the way in which he, he explains this at times. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. But it's not just, he's not, he, he, he's not focused on himself. If we look at uh, verse uh, six, th- this particular verse that we're looking at now, Paul says, you became a followers of us and the Lord. So we see that in this, he's not just saying of us, but he's, he's narrowing that, that as far as I, what I'm doing right, imitate that. When I'm out of fellowship and I'm living in carnality, don't imitate that. Just imitate that which emulates, emulates the Lord. We see this in another verse. In First Thessalonians, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea. So in certain ways, they are following a pattern that's being set by the first churches that were established in the church age, those that were back, uh, back in Judea. But ultimately, Paul, Paul is pointing out that we are to imitate Christ. He's not just about himself. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So we have to understand that when he's in a passage, uh, in a letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. That must be understood in light of 11.1, that imitate Paul insofar as he imitates Christ. So that's that's the point. We are not to have our focus on people, but our focus is supposed to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only time we are ever ever see a focus on people is when the apostles are setting themselves up as an example, but only insofar as they are imitating Christ. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God as dear children. That's the pattern. That's the ultimate reference point. And then in Hebrews 6.12, we read uh, that, that a warning that we should not become sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there are human examples. There's a list of Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11. There are other examples in the New Testament that are given for us in order to help us to focus on uh, a visible pattern in terms of living living out the spiritual life. So if we understand the concept, it, it fits with what we've been studying in Matthew on discipleship. Discipleship is where you have a teacher and you have students who align themselves under the authority of that uh, 
of, of that leader, that teacher. And of course, our leader, our teacher were disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, not disciples of a man, not disciples of a church, not disciples of a, of a denomination. But we are students of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we place ourselves under that authority. And as a result of that, we are to imitate him. So this is, uh, something that is, uh, related to the discipleship that we see emphasized in the Gospels. It's interesting that the con- the word disciple, uh, the verb, is not used outside of the Gospels. The noun, disciples of Jesus, or the, dis- the disciples, is used both in a technical and a non-technical sense. The technical sense to refer to the eleven in Acts, and the non-technical sense to refer to believers until later on out of Antioch, they start to be called uh, Christians because they fo- are followers of Christ. So the implication of that is that under discipleship, the believer is responsible and obligated to implement the commands of the, and the instruction of the teacher. And one of the things that happens in grace-oriented churches is that people get a, a distorted view of legalism. Legalism is not a is not emphasizing the commands of Scripture or, or emphasizing obedience. It's emphasizing uh, absolutes in the areas where Scripture does not emphasize absolutes or adding works to either the gospel that you have to be saved plus you have to have certain kinds of works or you're not saved or adding adding works in a uh, way that isn't, isn't produced by the Holy Spirit to, as a means of sanctification, that you're sanctified by morality. John, uh, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians that just morality isn't good enough. Uh, you have to be walking by the Spirit. If it's if it's morality according to the flesh, then it still has no uh, no value. But legalism isn't saying we shouldn't do this as Christians or we should do this as Christians. Uh, that that can be legalistic. But it's not necessarily so. There are obligations and responsibilities that are inherent with taking care of the new life that we have in Christ. If you were to be given, if you were to be given a gift of a Rolls Royce, and that title was given to you, that is a free gift. It's yours. You own it. You own that vehicle, but you still have a responsibility or inherent responsibility or obligation to take care of it. You have to keep the right kind of tires on. You have to keep the tires inflated. You have to uh, change the oil, change the filters, all of those different obligations for maintenance. If you don't, the car is still yours, but it's no long, it can get to the point where it's no longer useful to you. Same thing in the Christian life. We have a new life in Christ, new position, responsibilities, and those responsibilities are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to take in the Word of God, desire the milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. We have to be in Bible class as much as possible. We have to listen to the Word as much as possible. You should be reading your Bible day in and day out. You should have a set-aside time of prayer, of specific dedicated, focused prayer every single day. These are just basic disciplines that every believer needs to cultivate in their life if they're going to go anywhere. And if you don't take care of these things, then it's very easy to be distracted and to be to be run off course. And next thing you know, your life has been completely derailed spiritually, and you're starting to reap the consequences of that failure. So we have an inherent obligation with this new life 
to nurture it, to feed it, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, we won't lose it, but it will become irrelevant to us, and we will uh, we will come under serious divine discipline. So we are to be imitators of Christ, and the result of that uh, is is emphasized here that in verse 7, that they became examples to those around them. Now, in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 9, there's also an emphasis in this to the same group of believers for you, where Paul says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. That's how you ought to imitate us. So that was something that he had obviously taught them before, uh, and then reinforced in the first epistle, reinforced again in the second epistle, you know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves as an example of how you should follow us. So the believer should live his life in a way that he can let his light shine before men. He needs to be in a position where his light, em- his life emulates the life of Christ so that he can be a visible example uh, to others. So in 1 Thessalonians 1.7, Paul goes on to say, you're imitators of us so that uh, you became examples. He pays it forward. They become imitators of him. In turn, they then become examples to all who are in Macedonia and Achaia uh, who believe, all who believe. Now, when we look at this particular word, I'm going to back the slide up to that particular uh, verse. When we look at verse 7, And we see this phrase, all the believers, all the believers. This is an interesting phrase in the Greek. It is, the the noun is, uh, or the adjective all is at the beginning. And this is followed by a dative, plural, participle that has an article with it. Now, the significance of that is that when a participle in the Greek doesn't have an article, it's, it's usually adverbial. That means it modifies a verb. But when it has an article with it, it functions more like a noun. Remember, a participle is a verbal adjective, a verbal adjective. And an adjective is just a noun that, that modifies another noun. So when it's, it has an article with it, and this is an important issue, it should be understood primarily as a noun, not as as uh, emphasizing action. Now, when you say all who believe, uh, you would be emphasizing uh, the action a little more. Uh, it should be translated like the New King James does, all the believers. In, in the Gospel of John, you find this present participle used a lot with pistuo. And it, which means all the believers, all those who have, who believe. But among certain types of Christian pastors, they say these are all those who continue to believe. They emphasize a present tense verbal action because they're coming out of a lordship position and they're saying you need to continue to believe. Whereas the reality is in terms of usage, the, the articular participle, that is a participle with the article in front of it, the the, should just be understood as a noun. All that Paul is saying is you became an example to, um, in verse 7, to all the believers. And I think it's in the 
uh, New King James, it says all who believe, but it's all the believers, just like we use the term to refer to believers. So it's to all the believers. Now, verse 1 Corinthians 4.16, well, let me skip through that. We've already run through those verses. Okay, in First um, one eight, Paul goes on to explain how this has taken place, how they became examples to all who were in Macedonia and Achaia. He says, he says, for from you, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia. See, he introduces those two in verse 7. Now he's going to go beyond those two two locations, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. So word is going out throughout the Roman Empire related to how the gospel has gone forth from them. And this is where we stopped and went off onto a tangent in a study of the faith rest drill where Paul says, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. So now when we stop and we look at this, uh, the first thing we ought to note is this phrase, from you, in the Greek is apo, is the preposition, and this indicates from you as the source. So this indicates that there was an active outreach, an active evangelistic outreach from the Thessalonian believers. The word of the Lord here uh, is probably a phrase that doesn't indicate the Scripture, as we use the phrase the Word of God to refer to the Bible. This is probably at what's called an objective genitive. It is the word about the Lord, the God, which is a way Paul often refers to the gospel. For from you the word about the Lord, the message about the Lord, the gospel has gone forth. And not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Now this word uh, sounded forth is the Greek verb exekeo, and it indicates, uh, and it's used sometimes to refer to someone blowing on a signal bugle or trumpet, uh, and it's a sound that goes forth, a sound that reverberates like an echo. So it's a very picturesque word, talking about the impact of their uh, of their witness throughout the world. It sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every every place. So as we see here from this slide, uh, here you have Macedonia and Thrace, and this route that we can see with the purple line uh, goes down through Thessalonica, but this was the Via Ignatia, which went on and on off to the west, went all the way over to what is uh, uh, now areas uh, related to Bosnia, Serbia, areas along the Adriatic coast, going up further north to- towards Slovenia, and uh, eventually up into uh, uh, Switzerland and then back down into into Italy. And so, and it went in the other direction. It would have gone all the way over to um, uh, Byzantium or what later is called Constantinople or Istanbul. So the, the as the caravanners, the truckers of the day would carry the gospel it went out and about uh, throughout the world. So they were hearing about their faith. Their reputation went went quite far so that as Paul ends that, he says, 
we do not need to say anything. It's obvious, it's well known, so we're going to go on. In verse 9 he says, for, again we see this word in English, when you see the word, the English, in the English word for, it generally refers at the beginning of a sentence to a Greek word gar, which means he's explaining something. So he has, exp- he has explained in verse, uh, he talked in verse 6 about them being an example. Then he gives a little further explanation of that in verse 8. And then in verse 9, he goes on to say something more about it. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And so here he is talking about those who would have heard the gospel from the Thessalonians. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had for you. So there was a continued expansion of the gospel. And then he says, and what they talk, this is what they talk about in the last part of verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is at the core of, of what Paul is praising for. They turned to God away from idols to serve the living and the true God. So let's look at this for just, just a minute. Here we have in ver- ver- the, the, the phrase turn to God is the Greek word epistrepho, which means to turn back, to return, or to turn. It's the Greek word that is often used uh, to translate the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, shuv, that when God calls the uh, Israelites or the Jews to turn to him away from the idols uh, that they had succumbed to and to turn back to him. And uh, this is often a form of that word is often used to speak about someone who uh, converts to Judaism or someone who turns back and has been non-observant and becomes observant. And so this is the same idea here. They've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here we see a couple of examples I've taken from the uh, Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2. Paul is talking about the future and says, and when you do this and you return to the Lord God and obey his voice. So returning isn't simply, and as we're going to see here, it's related to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. Turning is a change of direction. I believe that that turning is the result of the change of mind, but it also takes us you to the next step, which is obedience. So first of all, you change your mind. You hear the gospel. You hear the truth. and You say, that's true. What I've been believing is wrong. That causes you to turn away from what you've been doing, away from your prior belief system to the truth of Scripture. And then as you turn to the truth of Scripture, you're going to respond to the truth of Scripture, and you're going to obey what the Scripture says to do. So that's the procedure. So Deuteronomy 32 talks about that. You return to, when you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. Malachi 3.7, there's the command to an apostate generation to turn back to God. Uh, God says, yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. If some people say, well, God seems to have left me. Well, if God left you, who moved? 
It's usually not God that moves. We need to return to him, and he returns to us. God is not going to force himself on us. He may bring discipline and negative circumstances into our lives to get our attention, but ultimately it's up to us to exercise our volition. So they don't want to return. That's the point. That's the indictment on that generation in Malachi uh, 3.7. Another example of this uh, Greek word that's used to translate chuv in the Hebrew Old Testament, it was the Greek word used in the Septuagint. Hosea 5.4, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry, that is, spiritual unfaithfulness, is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. This is, again, an indictment on the generation at Hosea's time. Uh, this is roughly the time of... Uh, uh, just prior to the exile, uh, when God disciplined uh, Israel in 586 B.C., they refused to turn back to God. Second Kings 23:25 says, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord. This is a comment on uh, Hezekiah, I believe, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. This is Hezekiah. He turned to the Lord. This is turning in obedience. We see this phraseology picked up again when we get into the New Testament. When we get into Acts chapter 3, this is Peter speaking uh, again to the Jewish leaders, and he says, and to the Jewish people outside the, uh, the uh, temple, and he says, repent therefore and be converted. So that first phrase is the word metanoeo, which means to change your mind. And they are to change their mind about Jesus. And then he says, and be converted, that is, and turn. Be converted is a poor translation. You pick up the, the, the thread that we see running through Scripture in terms of its usage. It would be repent, change your mind, and turn to Jesus that your sins may be blotted out and what sins would those be? In context, because of what he's about to say, this would refer to their sin of rejecting Jesus as Messiah, that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The times of refreshing was a, is a phrase that refers to the blessing of the millennial kingdom. So embedded within this is the implied promise that, that the kingdom offer is still viable but first of all, you need to turn. That takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, that, that God is going to restore the nation, but first they have to return to him. So this is the idea in Acts 3.19. Change your mind about Jesus, turn to him, and then the times of refreshing will come. And nationally, that sin will be blotted out. Uh, then we see a uh, response to... Uh, the uh, Peter's ministry when he raised uh, Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9.35, all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. I believe that's talking about um, the, the episode with, uh, with, with Dorcas. Uh, they all turned to the Lord. That is the response to the gospel. Acts 14.15, this is when the apostle Paul is uh, in Iconium, he says, men, who are you doing? Why are you doing these things? We also are men. They remember when he went there um, to Iconium, they were bowing down. They thought that 
Paul, as the spokesperson, was uh, was Mercury and uh, and then uh, Hermes, and then that um, Barnabas was 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 Zeus. So Paul, so they began to worship them. And Paul says, "Why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you, and preach." or evangelize to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. That was his message that he took to these Greek uh, cities, that they were to turn from the idols to the living God. This is exactly what happens with the Thessalonians, what he praises them for. And the God is defined as the creator God who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all things that are in them. Uh, in the next chapter, in Acts 15, which is the chapter dealing with the uh, Jerusalem Council. And there the decision was made not to impose the Mosaic law upon Gentiles. And the conclusion is, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. That That is a synonym, therefore, for those who are trusting in the gospel. So we look at verse... Um, Verse 9, they themselves con- declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Now that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And what then are they doing? They turn to God. In the meantime, they are to serve God during their Christian life. That has been the modus operandi of Christians ever since, that we are to turn to God and serve him in this life as we wait for his son from heaven, as we wait for his son from heaven. And this is the Greek word on a minnow, which means to wait or remain. This is uh, what we do during the church age. We are waiting for the Lord to return. This is what ends the church age. Now, there's an implication in this, wor- in this word because we're waiting for his son from heaven. It doesn't say for him to return to the earth. That would be the second coming because Jesus is described later in the verse as the one who de- delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath to come, as we'll see, is a term in context which relates to the tribulation. So this is a verse that in context supports a rapture that occurs prior to the tribulation. So we're to wait for his son from heaven, and his son is defined as the one whom he raised from the dead. This is not a second personage that's going to come from heaven, but it is the one who came to the earth, who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one who entered into human history through the virgin conception and the virgin birth uh, through Mary and was uh, reared in Nazareth and grew to maturity and then had a public ministry on the earth. He's flesh and blood. He take, had taken on true humanity. Then he was crucified, and then he was placed in the grave for three days, and then he was raised from the dead. This is the one who's going to return. He was raised from the dead, then some 40 years, uh, 40 days later, he ascended to heaven. He ascended to heaven and he will come from heaven. This is what this emphasizes. He, uh, his son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now this word for deliver is significant here. 
It's not the word we might expect if we were thinking about uh, eternal condemnation. But even if sozo were here, it still works. It's a synonym. This is the word ruamai, which has the idea of delivering or rescuing from a physical uh, physical calamity. So we wait for Jesus and on his his particular uh, his particular timing. Now, when we uh, look at this, uh, we come to that last phrase: Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. So I want to stop here, camp out for just a minute, and talk about this word, wrath. What exactly does this word wrath describe? In the, in the uh, Greek, it's the word orge, O-R-G-E, O-R-G-E, orge, which is a slightly different nuance from thumos. But our orge has the idea, and in, in, has several ideas in Scripture. One of the ideas is to express the action of judgment, of judicial condemnation upon people. It, while it is a term that literally can refer to anger or wrath and does so as a sin in some passages in the New Testament, it is also a descriptor of the exercise, uh, the harsh exercise of judicial authority, not expressing emotion. Now, this is a figure of speech. Even in English, we talk about the fact that if somebody is guilty of a crime and they receive a harsh penalty, we say things like, the judge threw the book at them. Well, we don't mean that the judge literally picked up a book, stood up, and heaved it in the direction of the defendant. What we, what we are expressing is simply that they felt the full penalty of the law. In, in a trial, in the judicial system, we do not want a judge who becomes emotionally involved in the proceedings, but one who can objectively evaluate all of the evidence and all of the data and come to an impartial, uh, unemotional decision in order to properly, uh, properly apply the law and, and bring about justice. It's used that way in the Bible. In Romans 13.4, talking about the, the leader, the political leader, the magistrate, says, for he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, that word, bear the sword, is also an idiom. Bearing the sword indicates power over life and death which implies the validity of judicial punishment in this particular passage. There are other places to go to show the validity of uh, judicial punishment, but this shows that this is understood even in the New, New Testament church age period that the power of life and death is in the hand of legitimately in the hand of the magistrate. He is God's minister, Paul goes on to say, an avenger. Now, Justice is not about vengeance. It's about justice. And just the other day, as uh, I was watching a news show related to the Boston bombing and the uh, young man who was uh, found guilty, and in Massachusetts they do have the death penalty, and it is possible for him to receive the death penalty, they were interviewing a lot of the uh, victims of the Boston Marathon bombing 
uh, a couple of years ago, and these people were saying, no, I, I don't want vengeance. And it, this is, shows the fuzzy thinking that we have in, in, in the United States today, that justice is not about vengeance. Now, there are some people who confuse the two, and they, they want justice, but that's their vengeance. And unfortunately, in the Scripture, you have certain words that are translated as vengeance, but if you do appropriate word study, you see that the emphasis on those words is also on justice and applying the law and applying justice. It's not executing a personal vendetta or seeking personal vengeance in circumstances. So God, uh, God's minister is an avenger. That is, his focus is on avenging the wrong that has been done to the victim. The focus is on the victim, not on the rights of the criminal. Too often today we minimize what happens to these victims, and too often we're willing to let uh, heinous criminals out onto the streets and where they can commit their crimes again and, and uh, hurt and harm uh, innocent people. We need to protect society from, from criminals. So that's part of the role of the judiciary. And here it says the avenger is to execute wrath. Now that's not understood in terms of its literal meaning of anger, but in terms of its uh, idiomatic meaning of bringing about justice in a situation or circumstance. The God's minister is to bring wrath upon the, the criminal, not anger, but the full force of the law. So that's one way in which this word wrath is used uh, in the Scripture. There's another way in which the word wrath is used, and this is applied to God in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Now, the, the verb here is present tense, so that means during this time period on the earth, God's wrath is continuously being revealed. Now, how do we understand God's wrath? Is this God's anger? Is he having an emotional tantrum whenever people disobey him? Or is this a function of God's justice, a focus of his judicial uh, prerogatives as the sovereign of the universe? This isn't an emotional term here. This is using the term wrath in the same way that we just saw it in Romans chapter 13, that this is God functioning as the judge of the universe and punishing uh, punishing sin and disobedience. Another passage that we see, and I'm going to turn to this one, is in Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, which is the passage is comparable to Matthew chapter 24, and it is comparable to... Uh, Jesus' discourse on the end times, a question, when will the, what were the signs of your coming? But what makes the Luke passage a little different is that in the middle of the discourse in Luke 21, most of which is similar to Matthew chapter 24, but Matthew chapter 24 focuses only on the uh, future tribulation period whereas Luke 21 talks about the future events that take place at during the tribulation, but in the middle of this, there is relevant application 
for the destruction of Jerusalem, which was about to come. Jesus is talking in A.D. 33, and he's talking about what will happen with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so he says in verse 20, uh, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. That's where he shifts gears, and he says, when you look out here, uh, some of you will still be alive at that time, and you see the army surround Jerusalem, then you're going to know that its destruction is near. And this is what happened during the Ju- Jewish revolt from 66 to 70 A.D. that under, under uh, Vespasian, the armies of Rome surrounded uh, surrounded Jerusalem, and then word came that Nero had died, and Vespasian was going to go back and become the uh, become the emperor. And so Titus, uh, his son, takes over command of the army. So they retired for a short time to let Rome stabilize, and went back to Caesarea. And it was during this break in in the siege of Jerusalem that we're told that Christians fled Jerusalem. This laid the foundation for a huge break between the Christian Jewish community, the Messianic community, and the Jewish community that had not accepted Jesus as Messiah because they viewed the Christians as traitors. They didn't stand and defend Jerusalem with them. Uh, what happened is Christians knew that G- Jesus had said Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. When they see the city surrounded by uh, by the armies, then then get out, leave, flee, which is what Christians did. And so Christians survived the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, this set up a certain amount of, uh, of animosity between Messianic Jews and non-Messianic Jews in the coming generation. And this eventually played itself out leading up to the events in, in, uh, uh, in about 50 years from this time, 50, 50, 60 years in relation to the Bar Kokhba revolt. So Jesus said, "When you, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. This is the destruction of, of Jerusalem. But woe to those who are, in verse 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So here's the term wrath that is used of specific divine judgment upon God's people, upon Israel, in relation to the fifth cycle of discipline and the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD, AD 70. So wrath, as we see, is a term that often relates to the execution of the justice of God during history in this life. It's not necessarily something that is in, that is related to eternal condemnation. That's my point. Wrath does not equal eternity in the lake of fire. Now, here's a passage that uh, where wrath is used in terms of that future uh, eternal condemnation. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life in John 3.36, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides. Interesting, it's present tense there. It's abiding now as an unbeliever, but it will go on into the future. So there's this emphasis on the present reality that the unbeliever 
is under wrath. This is the same thing we see in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. Now, another passage that uses wrath uh, uh, in terms of the, of, of, of the future is Romans 2.5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath, that is divine judgment, in the day of wrath. That is the divine uh, judgment. This would be the great white throne judgment and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So again, wrath relates to God's justice. Here it's clearly in terms of the final great white throne judgment. But then you have this phrase that we find in 1 Thessalonians 2.10 that is talking about the wrath to come. The wrath to come clearly places it away from what's going on today, but it's not the eschatological wrath in terms of the great white throne judgment because it's seen and treated in these passages as something related to what's going on in history. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, it is John the Baptist who, uh, when he sees the Pharisees and Sadducees coming down to him uh, at the Jordan River, he says, uh, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, the brood of vipers obscures the meaning of the phrase in the Greek. It means you spawn of Satan, you seed of Satan. It takes us back to Genesis uh, chapter 3.15, that the seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the, of, the, of the serpent. So he says they are following their father, the devil, which Jesus accused them of over in, in the Gospel of John. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. According to the pattern established in the Old Testament, that before the kingdom of the Messiah would be established, there would be a fantastic judgment, an incredible worldwide cataclysm called the Day of the Lord that would involve uh, multiple armies and the destruction of nations and the revolt of the nations of the earth against uh, the Messiah and against the Son of Man who would come and would put down this rebellion and then establish his kingdom. That's what's described in Daniel chapter 7. So here uh, we see the, John referring to this future time, which is later described in Daniel as the 70th week in God's program for Israel, which we often refer to as the tribulation. Now, the word that is used for the tribulation is the same Greek word that is used for tribulation in general. I want you to notice in our passage back in verse 6 where Jesus said, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. And the Greek word there is flipsis, which is the word for tribulation. Uh, those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture are often accused of believing in some sort of uh, spiritual escapism, that, that things can't possibly be bad for us as Christians because God's going to come and he's going to rescue us. Well, th that is such a, a superficially phony explanation and criticism. I just can't believe people believe it. Uh, if you l just study history, there have been horrible massacres and persecutions of Christians. There are things going on today 
in the Middle East with ISIS taking territory and rounding up large numbers of Christians and beheading them, and in some cases uh, burning them alive. Uh, this has happened in Iran, where you where uh, Muslims who convert to Christianity are taken out into the public square, and they are executed by burning them alive, and then this is filmed and is broadcast live throughout the nation to instill fear in anyone who con- for converting to Christianity. So uh, Christians believe that there is serious persecution and extreme uh, suffering and adversity for Christians even during the church age, that the rapture is not going to deliver us from tribulation in general, but it is going to deliver us from the wrath to come, that is that future period uh, known as the day of the Lord that is a time of worldwide judgment that precedes, immediately precedes the establishment of the messianic kingdom. That's what John is talking about here to the, to the Sadducees and Pharisees who told you to flee from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 2.16, within our epistle, there are two different uh, uses of the word wrath. It doesn't always mean the same thing. You have to look at the context. First Thessalonians 2.16, if we read in that verse, I'm going to pick it up in uh, verse 4 where the sentence verse 14 where the sentence begins for you brethren became imitators see there's our word again just like we had uh in the uh in verse verse 6 so we see how verse 6 is the introduction opens us up to themes that are going to be developed further on so he's talking about their uh conversion and becoming imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea and Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ, for you also suffered the same things, that's that adversity, thlipsis, that's, that's suffering, the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men. So this is what these, they, these persecutors, the Judeans, did. Um, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. That's divine judgment in time. So here we see it used in terms of present tense divine judgment. But then when we get to chapter 5, verse 9, it's used again in a future sense. It's related to the uh, judgment of the day of the Lord. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the wrath in context is the day of the Lord. So the deliverance or the salvation that we're going to get uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ means that we don't go through that day of the Lord. We will, As church-age believers, we will be removed from the earth prior to that, day, that uh, day of the Lord judgment, which means that we do not go through the tribulation. So that is the emphasis here uh, at the end of verse 10. It's also indicated by the preposition that's used there, from the wrath to come, means that we don't go into the wrath to come, but we are supernaturally rescued before the wrath to come begins. So that supports the... Uh, pre-trib rapture. Now I'm going to come back next time. We'll talk about it a little more and then we will look at how this supports a very important doctrine in the scripture called the imminency of Christ's return. We'll focus on that next time. 
uh, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, and that even though there, even though we as Christians in this church age go through horrible testing and there's horrible adversity that takes place and persecution, nevertheless we know that as a church, as the body of Christ, we will not go through the uh, Daniel's 70th week. We will not go through that time of wrath that extends from the wrath of the Lamb in the first part of the tribulation to the full force of your wrath at the end of the tribulation so that the rapture comes first. Father, help us to recognize we are to be examples. We are to imitate Paul, imitate Christ, imitate the great saints who have trusted in you and walked by God the Holy Spirit so that we may be examples to others as we continue in our growth to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.